Uh, we will be in John chapter 16, if you want to kind of get ready for that. But let's pray, and then we will begin to fellowship in God's Word. Our Lord, we thank you so much for this Lord's Day that you have ordained for us to gather together to hear your Word preached, to minister our gifts to one another. And uh, we just pray, Father, that you would use your Word as it goes out, <clears throat> both in Sunday school and preaching, and also as we sing it to cause your people to persevere in the faith and to strengthen your people. Um, we pray, Father, for those that may be amongst us that are not yet awakened, that you would uh, do your awakening work. We pray that you would send your spirit uh, to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, that they would run to you for rescue. Thank you so much, Lord, for the freedom that we sh uh, share in this country. We pray for our friends around the world. I think of some missionaries in, in Pakistan that do not share the same sense of safety. We pray for your blessing and protection upon them. We also think of our Christian friends in China, other places in the world. Lord, that your church would expand and that you would be glorified. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Uh, one of the questions we want to ask you guys to consider as we're warming up this morning. Is it still cold out there? Man, it was a beautiful. I don't know what it's like right now, but I drove in about 630 and it was beautiful. Driving in, looking at the hills, the mountains, the sun kind of peering through the clouds. All right. So. Um, so has anybody taken advantage of the who's taking advantage of the story for us app who's watched the film okay has anybody been able to share this app or share the link all right great we've got a few of you so we want to encourage you guys to continue to think about sharing not just think about it. let me rephrase that please share this link send it to some friends this week um i think on my app <coughs> i've i've uh of course i have an advantage to you because I've shown it to all you guys, and so I, I get your clicks. And um, I also posted it on Facebook. But on my app, it shows me how many people have watched the film since I since I started using it. And it is loading. I'll tell you what it says here in a second. 234 people have watched it since I started using it. So that's pretty cool. And uh, so it, when you sign up for your own account, it'll tell you that. So let's let's keep praying for each other that way. A uh, couple review questions. Have you taken advantage of Pastor Mike? We have a couple people here who have. Um, got to go share the gospel with somebody this week. Anybody else want to take advantage of me? Just let me know. Um, I, my uh, Some of the young men that I disciple... <laughs> Um, they told me that they're going to next time we go out for pizza, they're going to dare me to do some open air preaching at the pizza place. So we'll see how that rolls. Um, so, yeah, let's be praying for each other in our evangelism. Remember, evangelism, the Great Commission is a team sport. You don't need to feel alone. It's not like tennis. And um, so you can don't necessarily feel like, oh, if I'm not the one doing all the main speaking, then I'm a, lo I'm a loser. No, you can go along and pray. You can be the one that's handing a cup of water. There's all kinds of things we can do. Remember in Hezekiah's revival, there were some people just taking out the trash, right? So we're all part of the team. And so as we're praying for each other, um, we all get to participate in this team sport, so to speak, called the Great Commission. All right, so what did you guys think of last week's lesson before we move into this week's lesson? Any thoughts on the movie? Or anything you guys remember? What's up, Brian? What's up? Brian? Pastor Mike? How's it going? Nice to meet you. Brian and I have known each other for... 30 years? Is that right? How old am I? Yeah, about 30 years. 1987. 
1987. You were born in 80? Wow. Wow. So Brian and I have known each other a long time. Yeah, Dave. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. I think that was a great argument. Yeah, you have all these people, Dave saying, that are scared and run away when Jesus is arrested, but then for some reason they're suddenly willing to give up their lives. That just doesn't make sense unless they really had seen Jesus rise from the dead. Um, I mean, there are people, I like this qualification, there are people that will give up their lives for something that's just a lie. <clears throat> the difference is these guys all ran away. They had already decided to try to save their hides. What made the difference? Why did they suddenly turn the other way and say, we'll go in to the fray and we'll, we'll, we'll give up our lives? Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, so you'll have people who will, like say, you know, like the kamikaze pilots, right? They would fly their airplanes into a, a boat. They thought it was real. They didn't realize it was a lie. <coughs> but if the argument against the resurrection that people make is the disciples knew it was a lie, and yet they died for it. And that doesn't really wash. Tim... Uh, Chafee, that that guy, I could have studied for 80 hours and not come anywhere close to the kind of presentation he gave us last week in the video. So, uh, great guy, really knowledgeable. I sent, if you guys remember, I sent you a link if you want to see some follow-up material on him. So, yeah, so that was uh, great stuff on the resurrection this morning. We're going to now move into the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The promised helper comes. So we're turning a corner now in, in the history of the early church as we talk about the helper. And we're going to start off with John 16. So let's go ahead and turn there. We're going to spend a little bit of time in John 16 and then move into Acts as we talk about this person that the Bible calls the Holy Spirit. Sometimes the Bible calls him the helper, sometimes the comforter. And we're just going to try to figure out what this means. What, who is this person? So let's start in verse 5, John sixteen five. If you guys remember the setting here, this is when Jesus is in the upper room and he's talking to his disciples, really the night, you know, right before he gets arrested and dies. And... Um, and so these are many of his parting words. So let's start in verse 5, and then we'll just kind of make some comments as we move to verse 15. But now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. So he had told his disciples a few different times that he's going away, and it's starting to settle in now this evening as they're, partaking of the Passover together, that Jesus really is leaving us. And uh, and so you can just feel Jesus senses their sorrow. Here they've spent three years with Jesus. They've seen him do all these miracles, amazing things. Uh, many of them had bought into the Jewish ideal that he was going to set up the kingdom, kick the Romans out. Now they're realizing it's not going to go that way. Jesus has been talking about dying. He's going to leave us. I'm not a big fan of uh, uh What's that movie? Godspells? Or the anybody ever seen Godspell, the player, the movie? Not a big fan of it overall, but it does set up this sorrow scene pretty well on how the disciples are very sad at the departure of Christ. Uh, let's look at verse seventeen. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth: it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him. I don't know about you, but this is kind of an odd statement. Jesus says, I'm going away and it's to your advantage. 
I don't know if Jesus was here hanging out with us. Let's say we had Jesus come in and be our speaker for a week and we're all just hanging out with Jesus. And then Jesus says, I'm going to go away now. And it's to your advantage. I'd be like, no, don't leave. And so I can't imagine how this could be to our advantage that Jesus is going to leave. But he says, no, this is to your advantage because I am going to send or leave the helper. Who is this helper? Um, well, if you guys remember back in in John 14, let's look over at. I think it's. a. Uh, where are we looking? Is it uh, 14, 16? Is that be one place? And I, I will pray the father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive and so on. So in earlier in the dialogue, he's already established who the helper is. It's the spirit, the Holy Spirit. And so right out the gate where Jesus is starting to set them up for who the Holy Spirit is, he's starting to help them understand the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. If Jesus is amazing as he is, all the things that he did to display the glory of the Father, the healings that he did, the love, the mercy, and he's leaving, but he says it's to your advantage because then I can send the helper. It must be that the helper is at least co-equal with Jesus. He's going to come and do just as good of a job as Jesus did, which implies that the Holy Spirit must be God. In fact, we, we see evidence of that in other places in Scripture. And so so he's going to depart. He's going to send the helper. And But notice uh, a couple of prepositional phrases here in verse 7. Uh, the helper will not come to you. Or if I do not depart, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. So Jesus is going to send the helper, i.e. the Holy Spirit, to whom? To you. Who's the you in this context? The disciples, exactly. So we've got the disciples. But notice what he says in verse 8. And when he has come, that is the helper, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So the, whole, the helper is going to come to you. And when he comes, he's going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. If I'm one of the disciples, I'm like, and that helps me how? Right? He's, you're going to send us the helper. And the very first thing that comes out of Jesus' mouth as far as what the helper is going to do is he's going to do something for the world. And so I'm like, well, how does this help me that the Holy Spirit's going to convict the world? And specifically, he says he's going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Then he goes on to further explain, verse 9, of sin, because they do not believe in me, of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. This is very typical Jesus speak. Hebraic type of phrases where the disciples are probably sitting there like, okay, Jesus, uh, we don't quite get it. So you're sending us this helper. He's going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. You give us these reasons. He's going to do that. Then verse 12, he says, I still have many things to say to you, because, uh, but you cannot bear them now. So there's things that he's saying that I don't know that they could really understand yet. And there's other things he would say, but they're probably on overload. They're very emotional. Uh, there's just things that they could not possibly comprehend yet. Why not? Well, they're going to need the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 13. However, when he, that's the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. And he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. Okay, so the Holy Spirit's going to come. Here's something else the Helper's going to do. He's going to speak to you. He's going to guide you into all truth. And he's going to tell you of things to come. Okay, so now things maybe are starting to clear up a little bit. He's going to decide that he's going to lead the disciples into truth. Not just 
some truth, all truth. And um, and he's going to help them see things that are in the future. What does this sound like? This sounds like the Holy Spirit is going to reveal to them prophetic truth, future things, things that we could not know otherwise unless God told us. So these disciples that are sitting in the room with Jesus who are about ready to go scatter like a bunch of cockroaches, the Holy Spirit's going to come. He's going to help them. He's going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We'll talk about what that means in a second. But then he's going to guide them into all truth as they go out and preach. And also we know write. They're going to write scripture. He's also going to bring prophecy. He's going to bring things to them and reveal things to them that had not been revealed before about future events. And as we read the rest of our New Testament, we do see that uh, the apostles write about future events. Particularly, we see the apostle John, right? Gives us lots of data in the book of Revelation. Let's continue the next couple of verses. Verse 14, he will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. So part of the role of the Holy Spirit is to come and really draw attention to Jesus. Verse 15, all things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. So in verse 15, you see all three persons of the Trinity. The Father has given things to the Son. The Son gives things to the Spirit. The Spirit declares it to the apostles. This is a mystery, admittedly. Um, but as we've talked about in the past, it's all over the Bible. The Bible indicates three truths about the Godhead. There is one God, right? There are three distinct persons. We saw that at the baptism of Jesus. Jesus was praying to the Father. The Father was there saying, this is my beloved Son. The Holy Spirit is descending as a dove. Three distinct entities. One God. Three persons. And each person uh, is fully God. The Father is fully God. Jesus is God. The Son is God. They're distinct. Can we understand this? No, we cannot. It is a mystery. Uh, I was thinking about showing you guys the old, the the, the two little leprechaun theologians video. Have you guys seen that? <clears throat> uh, Lutheran satire. I'll have to show that next time. Lutheran, look it up. Lutheran satire, St. Patrick, where basically these two little leprechaun theologians are listening to St. Patrick give his analogies about the Trinity. And they're like, no, Patrick, that's heresy. And uh, there's no analogy that really does do justice to the Trinity. We use little analogies to help children get a basic idea, right? Like the egg, you have the the shell and the white of the egg and the yolk, right? You have a three-leaf clover, which St. Patrick used. You have ice, right? Ice, steam, and water. These are all little analogies that kind of help children, but when you press them to their full length, they all teach heresy, right? They None of them work. And uh, so that's kind of the point of that that video. Uh, maybe we'll show it next time. So let's go back to uh, let's go back to verse eight. Okay, so one of the roles that we see here is that the Holy Spirit, when He comes, I don't know about you, but I would expect Jesus to say He's going to come and help you, and here's how He's going to help you guys. He's going to comfort you in your trials. He's going to help you because you're so sorrowful right now. There's many different things that the Holy Spirit does do. But the first thing that Jesus that comes out of his mouth is he's going to help you by convicting the world of sin, righteousness and judgment. Then verse nine of sin, because they do not believe in me. OK, so let's think about this. The world, the world is those that are outside of the faith. Some people would say it's the world of the Jewish world right now that Jesus is talking about because the message had primarily gone out to Jews at this point. That could be. But clearly it's everybody who's outside of the kingdom, outside of the faith. Jesus is going to talk about the world a lot in John chapter 17. And the Holy Spirit will come and convict the world or reprove the world, correct the world. Why? Uh, why what is so sinful in the world? They do not believe in me. So the primary sin that the Holy Spirit's going to convict the world of is lack of faith in Jesus. So that's one of the ways he's going to help the apostles. You're going to go out 
I'm kind of fast forwarding here, letting the cat out of the bag. Peter, you're going to go out and preach the gospel. You guys are going to go out and preach the gospel. And the main sin that the Holy Spirit's going to begin to convict people of is their lack of faith, that they they have not and they do not believe in Christ. But then he's also can convict them of righteousness, verse 10. What does that mean? Because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Jesus, who is the ultimate example of righteousness, of goodness, is the ultimate one who represents the Father. He's leaving this world now. So when Jesus is ascended, there is no other human being on the planet that represents the righteousness of God the way Jesus did. There's just no one. And um, and so the Holy Spirit is going to come through the preaching of the gospel and begin to convict people that Jesus really is righteous and you really aren't. And we're going to see that here in a moment when we turn to Acts. Jesus is all that and you are not. So he's, that's part of the helping role of the Spirit. And then lastly, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So the Holy Spirit's going to come. And he's going to remind the world that judgment really is a coming. And it's begun already with the ruler of this world, that is Satan. Satan has already been judged and he knows it. That's why that he's just so going crazy trying to drag people away because he knows his time is limited. He's already been judged. He's been cast out. Christ heel is already on the head of the serpent um, and so the devil knows this and it's just a foretaste of this judgment this complete judgment that's coming so in light of that let's fast forward to Acts chapter 2 we're going to look over now at Pentecost and so Jesus predicts the coming of the Holy Spirit actually we're, let's look at Acts 1 first Acts 1 Verse three. But now fast forward, Jesus has died. He's been raised from the dead. He's already appeared to his disciples and many others. Let's look at verse three, Acts one, three. I'm reading from a new King James, by the way, uh, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. This is Luke writing this. And so Luke is saying he, he was seen by you all. He was seen by many people infallibly. Anybody who would have been reading this at the time when Luke writes this, they would all know that, yeah, Luke's right. We all saw Jesus rise from the dead. This is infallible, infallible evidence. Verse 4 and being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he had said, um, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And what will be the result of that power? You shall be uh, witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So right at the opening stages of the book of Acts, we see the uh, reminder of the promise of the Holy Spirit. This helper, this promise is going to come. What's one of the main things that's going to happen as a result of the coming of the Holy Spirit is you're going to be witnesses. So I want to suggest to you something. I'm going to I'm going to throw out a theory and then you guys can tell me if you think this theory bears out as, as we look at chapter two. Jesus had promised that the helper would come. And one of the main things the helper is going to do is he's going to convict the world in these three different areas. And then Jesus later in another time says that the Holy Spirit's going to come. And what he's going to do is he's going to give you power to be witnesses. I want to suggest that the movement of the spirit to, for people to witness coordinates with the movement of the spirit to convict the world. And that as the spirit's moving God's people out, he's also moving in the hearts of the world. And this all locks in like a nice Lego piece. And so it's all the Holy Spirit that's doing this. Holy Spirit's moving upon the church. 
The Holy Spirit's moving upon the world. He puts the two together and we get people get born again. Right. That's the plan, the grand scheme of the of the Trinity. And so let's with that theory, let's look at Acts chapter two and let's see what happens on this. This birthday of the church that we call Pentecost. So let's uh, so we'll look at Pentecost here. Try to make some running comments starting in verse one. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, um, they were all with one accord in one place. When it says they were all in one accord in one place, you can look back to verse 15 in the previous chapter. This is probably still the 120 that were gathered in somebody's house. Um, And so they're all kind of gathered together. This is uh, Pentecost. So Pentecost is one of those festivals that we've talked about in the past, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Weeks. We call it Pentecost because Pentecost is really a transliteration from the Greek to the English. Pentecost, I forget how you say it, Pentecostos in Greek just comes over into English as Pentecost. It just literally means it's like weeks. Okay, this comes from basically Judaism. It was one of the seven festivals. Does anybody remember my little weird acrostic to remember the seven festivals? Am I the only one that that helped? Okay. It was a, it was Puffwitat. Puffwitat. P-U-F-W, and I add the little E. Tat, T-A-T, Puffwitat. So Puffwitat, Puffwitat. I taught, I taught, Puffwitat, right? What does that stand for? P is... Passover, U is unleavened bread, F is is the uh, first fruits. Okay, so those three all happen like within a week period, right? Then you have the we, that's weeks. That's 50 days. That's why we call it Pentecost. 50 days after this first Passover, the Passover. And so the Feast of Weeks is right in the middle of these seven feasts. All right, Feast of Weeks is... It's kind of like the uh, it's like the kickoff of uh, of kind of like the harvest season, so to speak. Then you get to the tat, right? That's uh, uh, trumpets, atonement, tabernacles, trumpets, atonements, tabernacles. Puff we tat, puff we tat. I taught, I taught, I puff we tat. Right? Can you guys remember that? That's the seven seven feasts. All right. So we got. So here we are. We're on the the feast of seven weeks. The, now. The reason this is important, we're all, we're all a bunch of Gentiles. Any Jews in here? Anybody with a Jewish background? All right, so we're all a bunch of Gentiles here. So we, have, we, we don't know the significance of Pentecost. If you're a Jew and you say, hey, it was Pentecost in, the, in Jerusalem, you would know there's thousands of people all around the Mesopotamia area, all around this area, because this was one of the big feasts that all the males had to travel to Jerusalem to to partake of this feast, so there's people of that. There's Jewish people who speak different languages, but there's also a lot of Gentile converts that are here that have become Jews that speak different languages. They're all here for the feast. People from all over the place. Just imagine people speaking different languages, different accents. You know, the main trade language at this time in the New Testament is Greek. So some, a lot of people are trying to talk to each other in Greek, but they have different accents as they're trying to talk in Greek, Koine Greek, um, so on and so forth. So lots of people, lots of different languages being spoken. Suddenly, verse 2, there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the house where they were sitting. I have no idea what this could have been like, but we're going to see it was loud enough that it drew a crowd. So we're not just talking about, Oh, did you guys hear that? What was that? No, we're talking about like some really serious stuff. Sometimes here at Bournes, when the air kicks on, you can hear the Joe probably knows why you can hear it grinding the little belts. You hear it. You know, and then it'll kick in. And so, you know, the air is about ready to come. This is just this huge blow of wind. Verse three, uh, then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. 
and one sat upon each of them. Now, those of you guys that have grown up with the Bible, you read this and you're just like, oh, yeah, tongues of fire on people's heads. No, the first readers of this and the people who first saw this, this is weird. Nobody had ever seen some kind of glowing thing that was on top of people's heads and they didn't know what to call it. So they just call it like tongues of fire. It just some kind of like flame on the top of the heads of all these believers. It's just like, that's weird. So we shouldn't read this and be like, oh, yeah, that's just this is what happens. You know, this is the Bible. No, this is weird. What in the world is that? Verse four. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. How do they know they were filled with the Holy Spirit? Jesus had promised they would be filled. But what does this look like? They were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The word Greek word tongues here, the literal idea is languages. They spoke with other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. So did everybody just suddenly they get filled with the Holy Spirit. They've got tongues in their head. And they say, I want to speak Syrian. Did they choose to just suddenly start speaking Syrian? Somebody else says, I want to speak Latin. No, as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance, suddenly they just started speaking in a completely different language. Verse five, and there were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men and from every nation under heaven. So this is a we would under, understand this as a figure of speech. Basically, every nation that was in this area came was there for the feast. Um, and when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speaking in his own language. So let's set the scene here. It seems like this huge sound of wind comes. Everybody hears it. It's like, what was that? And so people start gravitating to this house. The implication seems to be that the 120 begin to come out of the house. They still have these tongues of fire over their head. And now they're running around speaking different languages. Um, so. And then, and then everybody's hearing them speak his own language. So imagine, let's let's look at some of the folks and, and where they're from. Look at verse 7. Uh, then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, um, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one in our own language in which we were born? Parthenians, Medes, Elamites. Uh, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? Okay, so these 120 come rolling out of the house. They've got these fire things on top of their head. They're speaking foreign languages. And everybody knows, they can kind of tell probably by the way they're dressed, the way they look, these are Galileans. You guys have studied the Word of God. You know that Galileans, this is kind of like, in Jewish terms, hickbill. I don't want to be offensive, but I'm from Bakersfield. When you say that somebody's from Bakersfield in California, it's kind of like they're uh, from the Hick town, right? They're they're kind of from Hickville. And so you have to imagine, um, you know, some people in the south, when people come from the hills of Tennessee, they would think there's the, the backwards rednecks, right? Um, so there's different parts of the country where you just kind of know by the way people dress, by the way they talk. These are kind of the backward folks. That would be the idea of Galileans. These are the backward Galileans from up north that all talk like this, right? They have their own little their own little Jewish accent. They're hillbillies, right? And and so they're not necessarily intelligent people and so on and so forth. But here they are. Here's all these Galileans speaking all these foreign languages with no accent, by the way. They're just speaking them. That's according to the way we were born. That guy speaks just like he was born 
in Rome or just like he was born an Arab or a Cretan or so on and so forth. And so so there's several miracles going on or uh, strange signs. There's the wind. There's the tongues of fire. And then there's languages being spoken that these Galileans clearly could not have studied. And 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 then they're they're proclaiming the glories of God, the wonders of God. So you can see in this first movement of the spirit at Pentecost, this was not uh, this was something that would have been very, very verifiable. This wasn't a bunch of people just babbling nonsense like down at the mystery temple down the street. You know, the, the concept of speaking in tongues wasn't unique to Christianity. Um, it was practiced by all the mystery religions in the early church. And it's been practiced by virtually every religion up to this day. So what was to distinguish Christianity from the mystery temple down the street where the quote unquote prophet would fall over with his eyes back in his head and start just babbling? What was to distinguish the Christians from that guy? Well, these Galileans were speaking real languages that everybody understood in their own tongue with no accent. And it's right here in the text. So what is, according to chapter two, what is the gift of languages? It's exactly that. It's people speaking a foreign language they've never studied before. Miraculously, the glories of God. Verse 13, others, even though these are verifiable signs and miracles, others mocking said, oh, they're full of new wine. They're just drunk. They're just out there. You know, these guys are crazy. They must have been up partying too late last night. Verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said, we're going to get into his sermon now. This is the same Peter that denied Christ three times. This is the same Peter that was following from afar. All of a sudden, he stands up in front of this big crowd of people. And he begins to move into this what we call the, the Pentecost sermon. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. And you guys know the, the Jewish reckoning of hours. It starts at six o'clock, right? So third hour, three plus six is nine. So he's like, it's nine in the morning. So nobody gets drunk at nine in the morning, at least not Jews, maybe the Gentiles. Right. But <clears throat> so clearly they're not drunk. Uh, so then he says, verse 16, but this is what was spoken by Joel, the prophet. He goes into this big quote, and it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out. Uh, of my spirit on all flesh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servant, on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above the signs of the earth beneath blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So let's just stop right there. First of all, I'm like, Peter, good job on your Awana verses, man. <clears throat> that is a long verse to quote. So this tells you that Peter knows he, he, he knows the word of God as a Jewish boy that's been raised to know the word of God. And then he stands up being filled with the spirit and recites a pretty lengthy passage from his mind, we, we, we were assuming that he didn't whip out his cell phone and read it from his phone, right? He's just telling you what the word of God says from his mind. And you'll also notice, remember, the disciples had asked Jesus, are you going to establish the kingdom now? Back in chapter one, what does Jesus say? It's not for you to know the times or seasons that are in the authority of the father, right? So at this point, the disciples really have no idea what's next in the order. Jesus had promised the Holy Spirit would come, right? And so they're seeing evidences of the Holy Spirit. But as far as what is going to come after this, 
Peter quotes this whole section from the book of Joel. And for all he knows, the Lord is going to come back in just a few minutes. Maybe the next week. We don't know. This is the this is Pentecost. We're seeing evidence of the spirit. We see people prophesying. And so he quotes this whole passage. Many of these items had not been fulfilled yet, but some of it's getting fulfilled. And so Peter just quotes the whole thing. And uh, hey, here's what Joel says. Then he goes on. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. A man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. So he's appealing to things that everybody had seen. Many of them, at least. They had seen Jesus heal the blind man and turn uh, water into wine and so on and so forth. All these things that seem to defy logic and the scientific method. But he's appealing to things that these all all these people had seen so they could each call him on it. They could say, no, Peter, you're just making that up out of whole cloth. We didn't see that. No, nobody even debates that point. As Jesus gets up to preach, it's undebatable that they had seen these signs that Jesus of Nazareth had done. But notice what he says in verse 23, him being delivered by what? And I'm reading from a New King James. It's going to say it a little differently in each translation. But the idea is still the same. Being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. So he's saying to all these Jews, Jesus had been delivered. The idea of delivered is delivered up. Delivered up to what? We're going to find out. Delivered up to the cross by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. You have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. We've talked about this passage in the past. God predetermined it would occur. But you have taken lawless hands, sinful, evil hands, and you put him to death. Peter is now just preaching and the Holy Spirit has to do the convicting work. But he's talking about sin. You sinned. In putting Jesus on the cross. By the way, he is the righteous one. He did all these righteous deeds before you. And so he's preaching righteousness. He's preaching sin. Um, And then look, verse 24. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Now he's going to go quote another Awana verse. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord. Always before my face, for he is at my right hand and I that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the way of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath uh, to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. Let's stop right there. So David quotes this long passage. I love how he's given the full context of the passage. And uh, and he knows it obviously by memory. Holy Spirit's bringing it to his remembrance as he preaches And then he's making some connections. He's like, hey, guys, David's the one who prophesied this. But guess what? There's his grave right over there. We could pull his bones out. So he must not have been talking about himself. He was talking about his seed that would come in the future. That is the Christ. Christ was not left in the grave. He's been raised from the dead. And you guys are all witnesses of this. So the people that Jesus is or that Peter's preaching to, they all would affirm, or at least the majority of them would affirm that, yes, Um, We've heard of these things or we ourselves have seen Jesus raised from the dead because he went around for 40 days. Verse 33, therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God 
And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you see here, see and hear. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he says of himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So what's going on here? So, so he's establishing the fact that Christ has been raised. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, a place of judgment. Till I make your enemies your footstool. This is a phrase of judgment, folks. This is not he seated him so that he can just kind of make everybody his friends. Now, the father's saying, you sit here until I make everybody bow before you and you put your feet on their necks. You guys know probably the ancient tradition, right? When you would go in a king who's who wants to turn the kingdom over to his son. He's aged. His son is getting to the place of ascension. And so his son goes out and goes into battle. The father sends everybody out. They they win the war. They bring the king of the other uh, tribe or the other nation before the father. The father would have his son seated at his right hand. He would have the king come lay down before his son and he would tell his son to put his foot on the neck of the enemy. And then that would just be ashamed the enemy to pronounce this. His son is ascending to this place of kingship. And then they would slay the enemy right there before the throne. This is a scene of judgment. Convicting the world of sin, righteousness and judgment. That Jesus will have his enemies put underneath his footstool. Verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know. Assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Brothers and sisters, this might be one of the least seeker sensitive messages in the history of the church. I can't imagine, you know, uh, how a lot of people would react to this kind of message. He stands up and basically says to these Jews, you crucified your Messiah and the father is going to cause all of his enemies to lay down before the son's feet while Jesus puts his feet on their necks. And he prophesies from Joel, a judgment passage. It's a day of the Lord passage prophesies from uh, references David about the resurrection. So he's speaking to the house of Israel. God made Jesus whom you crucified both Lord, he's Kurios, he is Adonai, and Christ, he's the anointed Messiah. So in this sermon, what do we see so far? Peter standing up, basically refuting the idea that these people are drunk. He basically quotes from two different passages. One refers to the day of the Lord. The other refers to the resurrection of Christ. He says that this has all been pre-planned by the Lord, but you are culpable by taking lawless hands and crucifying Jesus. But Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, and now he awaits for all of his enemies to be put under his feet. How are people going to respond? It's not Peter's responsibility to make everybody get convicted, right, of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Jesus has already said the Holy Spirit's going to come, and the way he's going to help you is he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Peter gets up, this guy who was a coward, he preaches. He preaches a pretty strong message that's filled with a lot of day of the Lord judgment type of stuff. How do the Jews respond? Look at verse 37. So when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Man, what an amazing response. How does this happen? How does this happen that all of these people who previously hated Jesus, these are some of the same people likely that were saying, crucify him, crucify him. These are probably many of the same people that were part of participating and picking up stones to, to throw out Christ. Remember, Peter says, you with lawless hands crucified him. How does this happen that suddenly these people are cut to the heart? This is a very graphic visual 
of the Holy Spirit convicting them that their heart gets cut. And suddenly they're like, what shall we do? What's crazy at this point in this opening sermon, Peter hasn't said anything yet. He's going to. And and as, as the gospel develops throughout the book of Acts, he hasn't said anything yet about the righteousness of Christ. He hasn't said anything yet about God's desire to have mercy and grace. He's just basically said Jesus Christ was put on the cross by your lawless hands. The day of the Lord is at hand. He has now been raised. He's at the right hand of the father, ready to put his feet on the necks of his enemies. And they say, what shall we do? Peter responds, verse 38, repent. Let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Here we know, here we go for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off as many as the Lord our God will call. So Peter moves into this. There's a it's it's following it's tracking with this real classic statement of Yahweh that he is a God who will by no means clear the guilty, but he has mercy upon thousands, whoever will call upon him to fathers and their children. Generation after generation, he wants to have mercy. So let's tear this apart a little bit. His basic message. What should they do now? They're cut to the heart. They're feeling the weight that Jesus Christ, we, we blew it. We don't know. Maybe the day of the Lord is right now going to happen. Maybe the blood is the, the moon is going to be turned to blood. We don't know the order of things. We don't know where we're at in the history of redemption. All we know is we heard this really loud, scary wind. We're seeing tongues of fire in people's heads. And all of a sudden, everybody's speaking foreign languages they've never studied. This is freaking us out. And now Peter's up here preaching about the judgment of Jesus Christ. What are we going to do? He says, here's what you can do. Verse 38, change your mind. Literally, repent. The basic idea of repent, to us, it sounds like a very religious word, right? Repent. The idea, metaneo, is just change your mind. You crucified him. You, you, you thought that he was one person. Now you're realizing he's another person. He really is the Messiah. He really is the Lord. Make a choice. Believe. Change your mind. All right? Change your mind. And then put that change of mind into action. Be baptized in the name, into the name of Jesus Christ. Get into water and be baptized into his name. What in the world does that mean? You're, you're going to get into water. You're going to go under the water, representing that you're going into the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus means Jehovah saves Christ anointed one. So you're going to acknowledge that I need to be saved by Jesus. So I'm going to go under the water just like Jesus died. I'm going to go under the water. I'm going to get out of the water in my baptism. So I'm going to be baptized in the name of Jesus, which recognizes I need to have something done with my sins. I participated in crucifying Jesus. So be baptized. Uh, in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins, remission, this, this throwing away of sin. Um, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. All these people are, are cut to the heart. Now they're now feeling their sense of sin and need. This is almost always what the Holy Spirit does before somebody gets saved and they call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't. you hardly you, I don't know if I've ever seen. I don't think you ever see this where somebody's like, yeah, I'm a pretty good guy, but yeah, I'll. I'll accept Jesus, as my savior. No, you never see that. What happens is the Holy Spirit comes, convicts you of sin, righteousness and judgment, just like these people. They're cut to the heart. They're like, ah. suddenly their eyes are open. They realize what have we done? We crucified Jesus This was our Messiah. We did what we should have never done. And now he is ready to judge and he's ready to put his feet on our necks and we're doomed. What shall we do to be saved? And that's when you get to that place of poverty of spirit. The Holy Spirit brings us to a place of humility. That's when the Holy Spirit then begins to come in and says, 
hey, that's right where I want you. By the way, I'm going to have mercy on you. Instead of Christ putting his foot on your neck, he's going to lift you up. You get baptized for remission of sins, and he's going to give you the Holy Spirit. And one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to help you see you're now adopted as a child of God. So you go from somebody who has Christ's foot in your neck to somebody who now Christ is pulling up and holding by the hands and saying, you are my brother. I am your savior. What a transition for this promise is to you and to your children and to everybody, as many as God will call. So as many as as God will call into this life, will receive this. So verse 40, and with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Be saved out of the world. Be saved out of this generation. It's perverse. It's evil. But you can be rescued from it. And in context, rescued from what? What is Peter saying they need to be rescued from? The day of the Lord. That there's this coming day of wrath that God is bringing on the earth. And part of what he's doing is he, the father will make everyone bow before the son and the son will put his foot on their necks. But when we see his overall desire is, is that people would repent, change their mind about Christ and receive his love rather than his judgment. This is part what's counterintuitive about the gospel is we we somehow we think wrath and love are mutually exclusive but in the gospel they're not wrath helps an understanding of wrath helps us see our need once we see our need we get love and those of you guys who have come to know Christ you know exactly what I'm talking about even as Christians we see this in our own lives i can remember driving my car across the owens valley when i was a young man I was heading up to Bishop. The moon was out full. It was just lighting up the Sierras on my left and the white mountains on my right. And I had been stiff arming the Lord in my heart in some areas of my life. And I'm driving, listening to some music. And all of a sudden, this overwhelming sense of God's judgment fell over me that I thought I was going to die immediately. I'm just driving. All of a sudden, it was like the hair stood up on the back of my neck. And there was this realization that God, if he wanted to, could come down right then and just take me out. He could cause my heart to stop beating. He caused my car to go off the side of the road. I, I was just suddenly overwhelmed with fear. And I was a Christian. And then suddenly I just started crying out to the Lord and tears were coming down my face. I'm just crying, Lord, please don't kill me. Please have mercy upon me. And then it uh, it seemed like maybe 15, 20 minutes later, all of a sudden, just this overwhelming sense of God's love welled over my heart, that God loves me and he cares about me and he does want to have mercy upon me. But what he's striving for is to get me to see my need, my need to understand that I need Christ, that I need to repent of my sin. And I don't know about you, but I'm grateful for those times when God reawakens me to my sin and what it really deserves and causes me to flee again to Christ and realize that that he is an umbrella over me to protect me from the wrath of God. I'm not escaping wrath because I'm a pastor and a good guy. If I think I'm if I think I'm escaping wrath because I'm Pastor Mike and I'm a pretty good guy, oof, you should stay away from me, right? But if I'm reawakening to a fresh a daily understanding that I don't deserve the mercy of the Lord, I need to cry out each day for his mercy. And you know what? God is so pleased to give us mercy. His mercies are new every morning. He's such a kind God. And so that's what we see happen here, right? Uh, so, we're, you know, that's kind of where we're going to end with his, his sermon. Actually, let, let's see what happens. So verse 41 then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day there were 3,000 souls were added to them. Crazy. Was the Holy Spirit working? Do you think the Holy Spirit was helping Peter here? No doubt. How the Holy Spirit had been preparing hearts. Holy Spirit's convicting sin, righteousness, judgment. Holy Spirit's filling Peter to get up and preach. Doing things that he could never do. And I just want to challenge each of us. The Holy Spirit is in the business of doing the same kind of stuff for each one of us. 
The Holy Spirit is preparing hearts in your neighborhood, in the Inland Empire, amongst your family. We don't know who they are, but the Holy Spirit is already working in the hearts of people all around you. We just need to go find them. Not everybody is going to be in the category of those who repent. There's going to be those that mock. We see it all over the Bible. We see it everywhere. But the Holy Spirit is moving in hearts. So who are they? And the Holy Spirit wants to use you and me to share the gospel. And I'm not saying that all of us are going to have the exact same role verbally. But we are all on the team to go out and play this team sport called the Great Commission. And the Holy Spirit's in the business of not just preparing the hearts, but also filling us up to proclaim it. Just look at what the Lord did with Peter. The Lord can do the same thing with you and me as we'll go out. You can just read a gospel track. In fact, I've got a couple. There's these tracks from the story film that we've been that we showed you a few weeks ago. I want to give these out to people who will promise to give them to somebody. Okay, these have uh, our kind of little address thing on the back. And I don't want to just indiscriminately pass these out because I don't want to just, I don't want them sitting in somebody's glove compartment. Um, but if you're like, yes, Pastor Mike, I will give this to somebody. Then I want you to come up afterwards, grab one. And you don't have to, don't get intimidated. You don't have to go through the whole track and read it. You don't have to stand up on a soapbox and preach. Just hand it to somebody, you know, this week. Just give it to somebody and run, right? Pastor Mike told me to give you this and then run, you know, and um, and you just don't know what the Lord's going to do. You just have no idea. The other thing that we can do by way of application is the Holy Spirit has been given us. And we already know the Holy Spirit's convicting the world of sin, righteousness and judgment. But also the Holy Spirit's there to help us with our own walk and to embolden us in our own faith. And one of the things that we can do is we can pray for one another that the Holy Spirit will enable us to be more bold in our evangelism. I want you guys to pray for me. Uh, people have been praying for me. I've been praying specific prayers this year, and I really am seeing the Lord answer those prayers. I feel like I have been able to do things uh, by God's grace that I haven't, I, haven't, I haven't seen the Lord do before. And so I've been really excited about that. Uh, maybe I'll share one story. Did I, guys, did I share you guys the Panera Bread story? I already shared that. Okay, well, I don't want to share that one again. Which one do I want to share? Um, okay, so I'll share. Uh, let's see. This was Friday. So Friday, um, I was out in San Bernardino. I went to a taco shop. I know that shocks you that I was at a taco shop. Those of you guys that know me, I'm at taco shops a lot. So, so I'm at a taco shop. I'm working on my Sunday school lesson and on some music. And uh, I've got my trusty Mitsuo Fuchita tracks in my pocket. <clears throat> and, um, and so a couple people came in. And uh, so I gave one track to one guy. He just grabbed it, took off. But then another guy came in and he asked the owners if he could borrow their phone. And then he sat and he just looked very distraught over in the corner. And I just want to let you guys know, you guys might think I'm some bold guy, but I am a coward by nature. I'm a coward and I'm more and I'm naturally introverted. You're like, how can an introvert be up here teaching the Sunday school class? It's a lot easier for me to talk to a crowd like this than to talk to you one on one. Right. You come up to me one on one and we go out and have coffee. I'll be sitting there like I'm more nervous talking to people one on one than a group. So anyway, so this guy's over here and and I can tell he's distraught, he's disturbed and so part of me wants to go talk to him, but the other part of me is just a complete coward. I don't want to make a fool of myself. So I just start in my head. I'm like, Lord, help me. Please help me. And, and I start imagining, I'm like, if this young man was my son, I would wish that somebody would give him a track. I would hope that somebody would go reach out to my son if he was, you know, having trouble. And so on his way out, I just said, hey, did you get one of these? And I just explained the track to him real quick. And the guy's eyes started to tear up. And he shook my hand. He said, thank you. And then he left. I have no idea what the Lord's going to do with that. But it was like, I really believe that the Holy Spirit was like pressing on me. It was like, 
give that guy a track. And I, I didn't want to, but I prayed and the Lord gave me the power. And I, it, was, it was probably a 20-second interchange. Wasn't it? And it's, it was any one of you guys could have done the same thing. You don't have to have a seminary education. You don't need to know Greek. You don't need to know how to say Mesopotamia, right? I just handed the guy a track, explained it real quick, and the guy left. And so those are the kind of things that you, we can pray for each other about. And if, if you'll just kind of like, uh, like that old hymn, Lord, lead me to one soul today, some soul today, as you just head out through your day, you just start praying, um, Lord, would you just, just guide me to one person that I can give a track to or talk to? <clears throat> it's amazing when you start praying stuff like that, how the Lord will just answer those prayers. He loves answering prayers like that. Does that make sense? We're not trying to heap guilt upon you guys. But this is this is something the Holy Spirit wants to do. It's a privilege. And it, and it's so fun. You guys know the experience. There's a lot of, you know, I've seen a lot. I know a lot of you guys do evangelize. And it's like when you're, when you're able to do that afterwards, you just feel like it's like the Holy Spirit fills you up more. And you're like, yeah. You know, you feel like kind of, you know, when they score a touchdown for your favorite team. or We should start doing that, man. Show up on a Sunday. We should start, like, jumping up and bumping each other. <clears throat> yep, we got to pass out a track. What do you think about that? You want to do that? I will right, we'll do that. All right, so I'm going to be up here if there's any final questions because um, we are over time. Do come up and get a track if you are going to pass it out. And I will take note of who's picking them up. Anyway, let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for just the presence of your Holy Spirit. We're not in this alone. We have the Holy Spirit who's in us. We're also in a body. We're being filled together. And um, whatever issues we're going through, our own trials, our own difficulties, we can bring those to you. We can bring them to one another. And Lord, ultimately, help us remember our life is not all about this world anyway. We're heading to an eternity with you. And uh, we have a short time here to make use of our gifts for your glory. So... Help us not to be overly caught up with our own reputation here on this planet, our own comforts, uh, but help us to be really about uh, the next world. So fill us with your spirit. We trust that you are convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so it's not our job to go out and force people to know you. We can't do that anyway. We just go out and just let the truth be known and uh, trust you for the results. And so we pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.